Good morning, everybody. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. Well, it's finally winter around here. Anybody go skiing this weekend? Some hands. I bet every single hand in Classic Calvary is raised right now. They are powder hounds. I took some turns at Eldora on Friday. It was epic. And I mean that in the true meaning of that word. You know how, um, if you're a skier, you probably know that uh, the ski resorts around here have what they call snow stake cams, sort of like to keep them honest about when they tell you how much snow they've gotten, you can check it and have real verifiable visual evidence. This is what the Eldora snow stake cam normally looks like. I think we have a picture of it. There it is. So this measurement, you probably can't see it, but it, but it starts obviously at zero here at the bottom. Right here is 14 inches, okay? This is what it normally looks like before a storm, and this is what it looked like on Friday. <laughs> kind of a difference, right? I had been at Eldora the week before also, and because of that one storm, the mountain was completely transformed. It was like a totally different experience. So much more fun than the week before. The week before, I was riding up the lift mostly by myself. Maybe they'd, there'd be one or two other people with me. As I'd ride up, I'd hear the sounds of, of scraping, of people catching edges, of crusty snow. As I was skiing down the mountain, I had to avoid some rocks and some muddy spots and some sticks that were stuck up. But, but this week, rather than empty chairlifts, I'm riding with all of my best friends. The lifts were full. And instead of crusty, fast snow, it was deep and fluffy. Instead of avoiding rocks and trying to uh, not run into a stick, you know, you, you were just loving it in the back seat the whole time. But it was quite a transformation, just from, from one storm. You know how people talk about um, there's something that's proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy? I'm here to tell you it's not beer, it's champagne powder. <laughs> the Bible actually uses snow as an illustration for us to understand what happens when God forgives us. When a soul is saved, when Jesus steps right into the middle of our life and interrupts us, and we too are transformed, just like the mountain was. In fact, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in the first chapter of his book says that our sins at one point were scarlet red, and then a storm came, and they were made as white as snow. If you have a Bible, grab it and turn with me to the book of Acts, to Acts chapter 3. As we continue our study today in the book of Acts, we're going to see a similar illustration of what happens when a life is changed. But if we're lucky enough to live in a place where we get the real visible, tangible example of a snowstorm on a regular basis to remind us it's a, it's a natural occurrence for us, the event we're going to look at in Acts chapter 3 today is not a natural one. It's a supernatural event. It's a miracle. So as you turn to Acts chapter 3, let's pray together. Father, we pray for your help today as we open your word. We pray you speak powerfully to us, God. We pray that you help us see as we journey through chapter 3, through a miracle, the work that you're doing in the life of a man and in our lives today. 
Be our teacher now, God, as we study your word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So today we're going to look at all of chapter 3 together, which is a lot of ground to cover. So we're going to structure it in two sections. First, a miracle. And then right on the heels of that, a message. Now last week, we saw kind of the aftermath of one of the first sermons that was preached by the Apostle Peter. And following that, we we saw the amazing thing that happened in the life of the early church in the first century. We saw that they were devoting themselves to specific things. The first thing is they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were also devoting themselves to each other or the fellowship. They were devoted to remembering what Jesus had accomplished for them when he went to the cross and died through the breaking of bread, the remembrance of his death through communion. They also were totally devoted to praying together. We saw additionally that that they gathered together and ate meals in their homes. And the text said that every day they were attending the temple together. That's how chapter 3 opens. The apostles Peter and John are on their way like they were every day to the temple to pray. It was 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And as they came to one particular gate at the temple, they walked up the steps and they saw a familiar sight. A disabled man who was sitting there asking for money, asking for help. Chapter 4 tells us that this man was 40 years old. He had been disabled, or in our text's language, lame from birth. And every day he would be seen at the temple and in other places around the city asking for alms, or help from people. He prevailed upon the compassion and kindness of people who lived around him. In the first century, there was no Medicare, no Medicaid, no SSI, no disability insurance, just the generosity of people. And this people in particular that he was asking for help from were some of the more generous people in first century Jerusalem. They were the people of faith, the people of God who were coming to the temple And it was common practice amongst first century Jews who would go to the temple to give alms or gifts to people they saw along the way on their journey as they prepared their hearts to worship. And so this spot that this man was located at was a good one. It was the final steps before you entered the temple to worship. The final opportunity before people entered the temple gates. This man was so disabled, our text tells us, that his friends and family, good-natured people would have to carry him to this spot. He was unable to walk. So he had spent a lifetime, dependent upon a, a coin tossed to him here, a bit of food given to him there, all while being passed by and overlooked by many of those who probably considered him to be insignificant. In the first century, a disability like this meant that in society you were considered subhuman, without dignity. So we might expect, given that we learned last week that in the first century church they all shared together freely, no one had needs, as as needs came up people gave freely, we might expect that as Peter and John approached this man they would give him some kind of lavish gift, one that would change his life meaning that he would never have to beg again, or at least not for a long time. I think that's what this man was expecting also. Look at verses 4 and 5 in Acts chapter 3. 
And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And the man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Just think of of what this man probably looked like. His head's down, perhaps his hands are out, maybe there's a basket in front of him. Peter and John tell him, look look up at us, and he expects to receive something. Maybe, Maybe he put his hand out, waiting for a gift. But what does Peter say? But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, what do you think is going through Peter's mind when he says this? Do you think he was trying to kind of get some courage up as he sees the man in a distance and he walks up the steps? Like, okay, I'm going to try this. My palms are sweaty. I don't know what's going to happen. I really hope this works out. Because if it doesn't, I'm going to look ridiculous in front of my buddy John. And he's going to go back and tell everybody, and it's going to be the same thing I hear all the time from the rest of the disciples. Peter, why do you always open your mouth? Why don't you stop and think before you speak? You think that's what's going through his mind? Or do you think he sees this man and is so overwhelmed in his heart with compassion for him? So filled by the Holy Spirit with love for this man who is basically dependent upon other people for his survival, that he confidently, courageously, in the name of Jesus, commands him to rise up and walk. Imagine how many people had just walked by, ignored him, laughed at this man throughout his life. I think that was such a regular occurrence for this man that Peter and John say to him, look at us. He wasn't even engaging relationally with the people who gave him gifts. Why? He's so ashamed, so dejected, so alone that he would just sit and hope that people would be kind but wouldn't even make eye contact. And here in this moment, Peter, who who doesn't have any resource to give him monetarily, has this amazing human moment, this relational connection with him, where he says to him, look up, look at us, change your posture from one of dejection and hopelessness. And, And as we see that, let's remember that no amount of shame is greater than the love of Jesus. We live in a culture today that is burdened by shame. People carry heavy, deep, real weights about what's happened to them, about what they've done. People bring it to church, to all sorts of different places. And empowered by the Holy Spirit, the apostles say to this man, look at us, look up, change your posture, because what's about to happen to this man is not a simple monetary gift that changes his life for a moment. 
but a life-changing transformation that will change the trajectory of his life. So my friends, no matter how alone we might feel, no matter what we might bring to church with us on a Sunday, the love of Jesus is greater than all of it. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And as people who grapple with embarrassment, shame, burdens, sadness, come into the midst of the people of God, they should experience the refreshing, life-giving love of Jesus. That's the example we see here from the apostles. And then what happens? Look at uh, verse 7. Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Verse 9 says, And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now hold on for just a minute. Is this legit? Like, did this really happen? A miraculous healing? Come on. Something I really appreciate about the man who wrote the book of Acts, who also wrote the book, the Gospel of Luke, Luke approaches the way that he writes these books from the perspective of a journalist. I graduated from the journalism school at CU, and I can see the way that he uses first-person sources, sometimes it's himself, to build the case for the story that he's writing, the historical account that he's giving. Think about what he says at the opening verses of the first book that he wrote in Luke. He says his desire is that he would bring eyewitness account, that he had followed all things closely for some time, and he determined to write an orderly account, a factual one. He wanted his reader and all of us, he said, to have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so there's multiple sources that are brought to bear whenever he makes a claim about something that happened. There are eyewitness accounts. He did the research. If he wasn't there himself, he may have witnessed this. He may have known this man. He may have been able to testify about it himself. But he certainly interviewed people who were there. And our text goes on even next week in chapter 4 to show that there were thousands of people who came to faith as a result of this miracle and then the message that is preached. And so, as it says here, all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate. Luke undoubtedly spoke to many of them to develop all of the details that we see, the language that was used, the words that were spoken, the exact things that happened to build his orderly account. So let's spend a couple minutes unpacking the evidence of this miracle in particular. First thing I want you to notice is that this was a real congenital condition. Our text tells us the man had been lame from birth. This wasn't some sort of like psychosomatic illness that could be healed. It wasn't stress-induced. It wasn't something that could easily be fixed by a word or psychiatrics. This was 
a real physical congenital condition that this man had had since birth. The other thing we know about Luke, not only that he wrote from the perspective of a journalist, but what was Luke's job? He was a doctor. And some of the terms that Luke uses to describe the the man's ankles and feet are really technical. The kinds of terms that a physician, a well-educated medical doctor who was familiar with the ins and outs of the human body and what worked and what didn't and what was right and what was wrong would be informed about. So first, this is a real congenital condition. The second is that this healing results in an instantaneous and permanent change. Immediately he is healed, it says. It wasn't like, and he went to surgery and recovered for six weeks and then had physical therapy for several years and then he was kind of able to walk with the use of a cane. No, this was an instantaneous change. He was leaping, praising God, jumping around, going from having to be carried by people to jumping up in the air. And third, there's undisputed objective confirmation. All the people saw it. They all recognized the man. We'll even see next week in chapter 4 that the enemies of the gospel, the leaders of the of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and all the religious leaders of the day actually are so annoyed at Peter and John for preaching about what happened to this man that they throw him in jail, they have a secret meeting, and in it they say, this is an unbelievable miracle. We can't deny it. Even people who disagree with the gospel objectively confirmed that this had happened. So could it have happened? Yeah. How about today? Can miracles happen today? Well, this might be a good rubric for us to consider when claims of miracles are made, was it a real congenital condition? Was there an instantaneous and permanent healing? When you're talking about a miracle, that's what would happen. Now, God certainly heals our bodies in amazing ways. And by the use of medicine and doctors, we can be healed and we can pray for that. That's, a, that's different than a miraculous, sudden, instantaneous healing like happened here. And there should be undisputed objective confirmation. If there is report of a healing, no one should be ashamed to bring it before a council of doctors. Bring it before people who don't believe in Jesus and say, can you confirm that in fact this happened? But could God heal today like he did in the first century? Is he capable of it? Absolutely. Is it the normal experience that we should expect to happen day to day? No. It's not even the normal everyday experience in the Bible. When we take a step back and look at the big story, some people call it the meta-narrative of the Bible, from beginning to end, what is God trying to accomplish in redemptive history? We see miracles occur at very specific times, really important moments in the history of redemption when God is visibly on the move. You think back through the last year of some of the texts that we've studied together on a Sunday, we were in the book of Exodus. Exodus is one season, a very important moment in the history of God's unfolding story of redeeming a people for himself where miracles happen. 
the birth of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, there are miraculous things that happen around Jesus' presence on the earth because God is moving forward redemptive history. Same thing in the book of Acts. God is doing incredible, important things in the history of the church and in the history of the world that are testified to by miraculous acts. One of our problems in our world today, in our Western, rational, secular world, is that we look at miracles and we say, well, that's unnatural. That can't happen. There's no scientific explanation for something like that. But the point of what miracles do, especially healing miracles, is that they restore the fallen order of the world to their true natural state that they were before sin entered into humanity. Like, it's not unnatural for this man to be restored to health. It's actually unnatural for this man to be disabled from birth. And the reality that the kingdom of God is entering into the world and bringing to bear all the truths and all the changes and all the realities of what's true about the kingdom now and what will be true about the kingdom in the future is being brought to bear in the life of this man. Through the apostles, Jesus is demonstrating that he one day will make all things new. And this is a glimpse of that. He is restoring this man's condition to his true natural state. Now he also, through the miraculous work of Peter and the other apostles through the book of Acts, which does happen, he is attesting to their authority as apostles. Look what one of the apostles, Paul, says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Just as the mighty works and wonders that Jesus performed during his ministry were attesting to his authority, were demonstrating that he was the king over all things, that he had control over disease and death and destruction. The signs and wonders that happened by the hands of the apostles are attesting to their authority. Because the purpose of signs and wonders and miracles is, is ultimately to point to Jesus. So as we shift in, cha- in chapter 3 from this miraculous experience to a message that is preached about it. We'll see that the purpose of the miracle is to magnify and point people towards the saving power of Jesus. It's not that healing isn't important, but there's there's a greater purpose here that is being accomplished through this healing. All right, let's look back at verses 7 and 8. Two things I want us to notice about the greater purpose that happens in this miracle. The first is that it said the man was leaping up. He stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. First thing I want us to notice is that healing and salvation are linked here. The healing that occurs to this man is is meant to be a sign of what has happened to the man on the inside. He has been saved. And we know that because he's praising God. It says later he enters the temple with them, praising God, worshiping him. This man's destiny eternally has been changed by the saving power of Jesus. That's one thing we see from the healing miracle. The second thing is, is that Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up 
and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. This man's identity was transformed. Remember what we said about the posture he must have had as as people came to him, downcast, not even able to make eye contact. And then in an instant, he's leaping and praising God. His feet and ankles, which had never worked before in his life, And it's not like, oh, he was kind of stumbling around, he was learning to walk. No, he was immediately leaping and jumping. When was the last time you leaped, you leapt, or jumped? Like he went from not knowing how to walk to jumping in the air and praising God. His life was transformed. His entire identity was reshaped and renewed and reborn because of the saving work of Jesus. His whole life revolved around begging. His whole life depended upon the good people who would carry him to different places so that he could ask for a gift. And now Jesus has just invaded his life and changed it completely so that now there is nothing he can do except jump and leap and praise God. My friends, when Jesus saves a soul... He also transforms a life. Jesus is not an add-on to our pre-existing good life that we have. It's not like, well, I'm a successful doctor, I'm a mom, I'm the president of the PTA, I'm an athlete, I also am really smart and I'm good at video games or I love to cycle or I love to rock climb or I love to ski, plus Jesus is a part of my life too. It's not, I'm a student at CU, I love going to football games, I love hanging out with my friends, I love doing all sorts of fun things. Oh, and Jesus is a part of my life also. Jesus is not like our life plus. Jesus means when he saves our soul to come in and completely change what our life is centered around, our identity, what we're all about, so that all of those things that are true of us Our vocation, our studies, our work, our friends, our family, all are lived in light of the reality that we have been transformed by Jesus Christ. So salvation and transformation go together. And this miracle, as we move into the section of the text about the message, this miracle is like the greatest sermon illustration in history. It's so unfair that, uh, that Peter gets to preach right on the heels of this miraculous healing. And he preaches this amazing message that just like this man's life had been reshaped and recentered around Jesus, his message is all about him. Look at verse 12. So all these people gather around because they can't believe what had happened. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And he said, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Right in his introduction, Peter shifts their attention from the miracle that had just occurred to the message of the gospel. Don't look at him, he says. Don't look at us. Look to Jesus. That's the whole point of what has happened here. Not that you would think we're amazing. Not that you would think we're powerful. Not even that you would be amazed at what happened to this man, but that you would be amazed by Jesus 
and what he has done. Just like the man's transformation, it's all about Jesus. And Peter begins to preach a beautifully Christ-centered sermon. It's really funny to think about giving a message about a sermon, especially one that we're told in Acts chapter 4 led thousands of people to come to faith. It's kind of like, well, why don't we just read this and then we'll pray and we'll all go home. The beautiful thing that Peter does through his sermon is always to bring it back to Jesus. And the way he does it is by calling out the name of Jesus, which is what he used to raise the man. Look at our next verse. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of him all. What's important about the name of Jesus? How is it that Peter could call on the name of Jesus and this man was healed? And then why would he follow on that by preaching the name of Jesus? There are three things we should know about the name of God and the name of Jesus. The first is that a name reveals something to us about his personhood, his character traits. That's true for us when we tell each other a name of someone that we've met. Have you met so-and-so? Oh yeah, I know them. This is what they like to do. This is where they work. This is where they live. There's something that's wrapped up in a name about a person. But with God, in addition to what we learn about his person, we also learn about his power. What is he capable of? And thirdly, we learn something about the presence of God and Jesus. What does his name bring to bear today? What is the ongoing reality of Jesus or God in our life today? His person, his power, his presence. While I was prepping this week and looking through Acts chapter 3, I just went through and circled all of the character traits I could see in Peter's sermon that described the name of Jesus. I think I counted more than 15. Maybe spend some time doing it this week and just look through and think about what do I learn about the person of Jesus as I read this sermon? What do I learn about his power? What is he capable of that I'm not? And what do I see about his presence? How can I experience the presence of Jesus today? So first, his person. We'll look at verses 14 and 15 to run through some of these characteristics. So we learn about the person of Christ first, that he's holy, but you denied the holy and righteous one. Jesus is set apart. He's in a class by himself. He is altogether different than you and I. He's holy. Peter also says he is the righteous one. If holiness means he's altogether different, righteousness can mean that he's altogether perfect. He is without sin. He does the perfect and right thing all the time without wavering. He always has and he always will. Now, when these two characteristics of the personhood of Jesus are taken together, they have deeply messianic connotations, especially for the Old Testament Jewish audience to which Peter is speaking. Isaiah describes the righteous one of God in Isaiah chapter 53. 
The Old Testament is littered with God being identified as righteous and holy, and that the promised Messiah would be the righteous and holy one. Even the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 1, when Jesus casts the demon out of him, says to him, who are you, the Holy One of God? Even the demons know who Jesus is. So that's two things we learn about the, the character traits of Jesus. He is holy and he is righteous, altogether different and altogether perfect, unique, different from you and me. Second, we learn something about his power. Peter describes him as the author of life. That is an amazing title for Jesus. Like, he wrote the book on creation. You know how valuable we find books to be? I mean, think about when you move and you're kind of purging stuff from your house. You're just going through and trying to figure out what can we get rid of, what can we throw away, what can we donate. You know, it's like Grandma's China. Who needs it? Get rid of it. You go into the closet. I haven't worn that shirt in a week. Chuck it. And then you come to the bookshelf and you blow the dust off of it and it's like, oh man, someone worked really hard on this book. We can't get rid of it. I mean, that $2 romance novel that I bought at King Supers, someone spent a lot of time writing that. I can't just throw it out. I'll donate it to the church library. <laughs> then they can throw it out and I won't have to feel guilty. Like, it's so hard to throw away a book because we know there's something inherently valuable in the words that people have spent hours and hours creating. Jesus is the author of life. How much more so are the things that he authored into existence? What does this mean for us as we take into account our responsibility as stewards of the earth, of what God has created what does it mean for us when we think about people of different ethnicities? People have, who have disabilities like this man who was begging on the steps of the temple. Jesus authored all of them into existence. All of those things were created by the author of life. It's pretty powerful. And third, his presence his presence is his ongoing reality in our life, and Peter says that God raised him from the dead, which means that Jesus is alive. That the sacrifice that he paid on the cross was deemed acceptable by his Father. The resurrection is a justification of the atoning work of Jesus on the cross. And when he raised him, he is declaring to all of creation, I have received the sacrifice of my son. And he is alive again. And we place our hope in it. Because we believe that if God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead, that when we put our faith and our trust in his name and believe in him, and call on his name to be saved, that he too can raise us from the dead. Now here's the amazing thing about the way that Peter preaches to his audience. He shares all these incredible things about the name of Jesus, who he is, what he's done, what he's accomplished, and what does he say to them about Jesus? He says, you denied the holy and righteous one. You didn't believe him. You turned your back on him. 
You sent him up to die. You killed the author of life. Just think about that sentence for a moment. You killed the author of life. Now, when people in positions of power are embarrassed or harmed, what do they do? They get revenge, right? You denied the holy and righteous one. You killed the author of life. How do you think Peter's going to close the sermon with these people? This is what he says in verse 26. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. What's he going to do? He's going to get revenge. He's going to show you, don't deny me. He's going to get justice for killing him. Is God angry? Is God going to react to what happened? No. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Just as no shame is greater than the love of Jesus... No sin is greater than the love of Jesus. If the ones who Peter said killed the author of life, Jesus has been sent to bless, to turn them from their wickedness. So much more so are we. To turn to him, to be blessed by God, by his lavish grace and love that's poured out to a people that are called by his name, that he draws to himself, says, as I save you, I want to transform you and reshape your life into one that is centered around my son, Jesus. And in that, you will find blessing and refreshment and joy and life forevermore with me. There is no other name but the name of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanks for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you sent him for a purpose to redeem us, to renew us, to reshape us more and more into his image. We thank you, God, that while we were yet sinners, that Christ would die for us. Even those of us who, by our sin, killed the author of life. You have promised, God, that blessing will come to those who turn to you, who leave their life behind and experience the life-altering transformation that comes through Jesus. pray for any heart in this room today who is yet to surrender their life to him. I pray, God, in the name of Jesus that they might be saved, that the Holy Spirit would invade their heart and their soul, that they would be born again, a new creation shaped increasingly 
into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We worship him and pray in his name together. Amen.